Uh, last last week we looked at the entire Bible from uh, Genesis to Revelation from the standpoint of seeing how it fit together and how it was to be studied and, and things of that nature. Now this week we'll pick up on uh, and we can't do this in detail and cover this much, but at least it's an overall way of why we accept these 66 books as part of the Bible, or, or as the Bible, part of the canon, and no other books, and then also uh, whether or not you can be confident that they were written at that particular time and also have been transmitted down in an accurate way. Now, of the 39, you've got 39 Old Testament books. <coughs> these uh, books, when we look at them, and they represent really 22 in the Jewish Bible, uh, 22 and 39. Now, what I'm going to give you is just a few simple ways to approach it and not going, obviously, into all the detail of how you would examine each individual book and things like that. But suffice it to say that when Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews recognize these 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus, this was their Bible. The uh, translation that he would have read from in the synagogue was the uh, Greek Septuagint, which was, was an Old Testament translation going back 280 through 250 B.C. Okay? That's the Greek Septuagint. And by Septuagint, it simply was translated, had reference to the 70. Top Hebrew scholars are translated from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. Okay, this now, here's an interesting thing, that from the time of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, to Jesus is 400 years. The Jews did not add anything to those 39 books in 400 years. See, that's significant. It shows that, that the Jews were very careful about what they regarded as part of the canon. And so for 400 years, there had been nobody stand among them and demonstrate himself as a prophet of God. And the interesting thing was, there had been a number of people claiming to be prophets of God. The Jew recognized a prophet of God as uh, one who was confirmed in some miraculous type way. Now, one way was the miracle itself, okay? Another one was prophecy, or both. And then also, along with this, there had to go the moral teaching. Now, every prophet that was recognized in the Old Testament, there were either miracles worked through him, or prophecies, generally a combination of both, sometimes just prophecy, and then they all taught this same moral teaching. Okay, in Deuteronomy 18... 15, and then verse 22, Moses had told them that after he left, the Lord thy God would raise up a prophet like unto me. In other words, there were going to be other prophets to replace him, and he, was, he wanted them to know that when he left. Now, let's think about Moses. They accepted Moses as a prophet because of all the miraculous things that God had did to him. And for example, if you were going to uh, deal with those five books today, uh, from the standpoint of the miracles of Moses, the, your first point would be, 
whether you saw the miracle or not, it's obvious those Jews of that day believed they were miracles because what else caused them to take those five books and reverence them and respect them and carry them down 2,000, uh, from 15, all the way down 1,500 years and then 2,000 for 3,500 years, the Jews have carried those five books as their law. And obviously they weren't gullible or anything because they didn't accept just anything. And so the very fact they grabbed under that and reverenced them and respect them is evidence at least they believe that they were miracles and all. But then something else happened within those five books, and that is those books contain prophecies of a Messiah to come. They, they set a sac uh, uh, in motion a series of sacrifices that pointed the way to Messiah. Uh, it gave the order for a tabernacle that uh, had its type, and uh, it, it was a type and shadow of some things in the, in the New Testament. And like we mentioned last week, it had a health code. It was absolutely perfect, which you can't improve on to this present day. And there were also prophecies here concerning the Jewish nation. And, for example, it tells them that if you walk with God and, and in a covenant relationship with him and all, God will bless you in all these ways. If you don't, all this will happen to you. And to read the history of Israel is to constantly read the fulfillment of what you read in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That if they had a godly man on the throne, they were blessed and prospered. If they didn't, they suffered calamities in, in various ways, just like it just like was mentioned. So, all of this then, and then the moral, uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, speaking of other prophets in his day, if they speak not according to the law and the testimony, there is no light in them. In other words, that, that if the morality they're teaching does not come up to the law of Moses, there is no light in them. And so, all of these books of the Old Testament contain the same high moral standard. Now, to show you how hard that is to do, in Christianity today, what we call, you know, and I use Christianity in an accommodating sense, everybody that even professes it, you look at the different religious leaders and the tremendous difference in morality. For example, uh, some churches will license homosexuals to, to preach. Others condemn it as flagrant sin, and yet each setting themselves up as ministers and all. Uh, some churches uh, have uh, uh, ministers who actually might divorce and remarry several different times uh, as a minister, and it's perfectly acceptable in that church. The Episcopal Church, for example, got its start when Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife. Uh, the Catholic Church wouldn't permit it. And so he just simply left the Catholic Church, started his own, so he could divorce and, and remarry, you know, for, for the sake of wanting to have children. And so that group to this day makes no big thing whatsoever. And the Episcopal Church, of course, comes from the Church of England. Makes no big thing whatsoever over the marriage-divorce thing. You can look at other things. Uh, one group will accept social drinking, and another group will accept just drinking, period, you know. And another group says, don't touch it. And you, so you see that kind of difference. Uh, you see it in um, your, your, even the dress. One group, uh, the preachers will stress being very modest. And the others, you know, they may uh, uh, mix swim, uh, wear the bikinis out on the beach or anything like that. It's just no big deal. So I'm saying to, to get a group of men over a period of, say, 1,500 years, like when Moses gives this law, all the way down to Christ, to... All of them be teaching exactly the same thing from a moral standpoint 
is by our own historical experience an impossibility. Look at our Congress. We've got the same Constitution. But look at our Supreme Court. Look at the different interpretations of the Constitution by the members of the Supreme Court. And look at the difference in our Congress, the tremendous difference between a, a, a conservative Republican and a liberal Democrat or a liberal Republican and, and what on. And all of this, all of them say they believe the Constitution, the difference is in interpretation. But yet, when we come to the Law of Moses, all of these prophets in these other uh, 34 books after the Law of Moses, they interpret the Law of Moses exactly the same. There is no difference in the morality of Isaiah or Malachi or Amos. And no difference whatsoever. So, when we look at this Old Testament, we see the same morality by all these different people over all these years. We've seen this tremendous respect. The very fact that Jews, when these books were written, reverenced them and respect them and, and disassociate them from other books showed that something happened. That's an effect. Something happened to cause that. Then when we look at the books, not only beginning with Moses, but coming all the way down through the prophets, we find the elements of prophecy. That on a regular basis, these people spoke concerning events that were in the future, and they were fulfilled in precise detail, sometimes even calling the name of people a century or so before they even lived. And that all of them, from Moses all the way through, spoke of the Christ. And when Jesus comes in the New Testament, the very thing Matthew is trying to get you to see when he starts off and says, Abraham begat He's taking your mind back to the time that God made a promise to Abraham that from his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then over and over you read in Matthew, this happened to fulfill what the prophet had to say. This happened to fulfill what the prophet had to say. And so the message is that he's the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And so you go to these 39 books and all of those prophecies converge in Jesus. And the interesting thing is that if no one of them have the complete picture of Jesus in the kingdom. But yet, when you take the light that each had and put it all together, it gives the complete picture. So you've got people that don't even understand the final product, who between them are put together the final product. And so now we come on down, and this is the state of, the, of this in the Jewish mind. They have received these books, reverenced them, and respect them because of the miracles, because of the prophecy and the fulfillment. There's been this same moral teaching all the way, all the way through it. Then today we come along and use archaeology and history and, and we can actually make a statement that there is absolutely no fact in the Old Testament, but that if you can verify with archaeology and history, it always stands the test. In other words, you may deal with something you can't find one way or the other, but any time that we have checked with Assyrian sources and Syrian sources and Egyptian sources and Babylonian sources pertaining to any of the kings the confrontations between them and Israel, uh, various other statements and all, that uh, always without exception, it bears record. And when we read of people like the Hittites and things of that nature, in the Bible we go to archaeology and we find those people. And so everything there that you can look at and check out, well, this is interesting because, see, secular historians are human. And sometimes they actually record things that are wrong because they think it's right. And so I can go to the works of Josephus or any historian in the past, any historian can, and he can show you some errors in Thucydides and, and some error in Herodotus or some errors in Josephus, some errors in Tacitus. Not only that, but they had their personality. Uh, Josephus tended to exaggerate. 
And so Josephus said there was 50,000 killed. There was a battle, and there was a lot of killing, but it probably wasn't 50,000. And the same is true with the with others. If they, the, uh, if they were riding under a totalitarian regime, under a totalitarian regime, you don't attack the emperor. And so the way the emperor is painted is probably a lot better than what he actually was. And his enemies are probably a little bit worse than what they actually were. So we can see that kind of thing. All right, the interesting thing with the Bible is that you don't have this kind of thing. Um, you, you find no exaggeration. And uh, David is king, and yet Nathan the prophet condemns him for adultery. And uh, that doesn't happen. Any other thing. And, and David's sin is brought out and recorded. Well, in other sources, you don't have the sins of the pharaohs and whatnot brought out by those historians in that in that place. Now, uh, it may come out two or three generations later, but not at the time he's living. And so it is with, but David's sins come out right while he's living and is announced. In other words, it's made clear that even though he's king, the real king in Israel is, is God through the law, you know. And so you have something that is unique to Israel, and that is the law is above the man. And in all ancient history, you will not find a single solitary country where the law stands above the man. Whoever is taught man is the law. And he adapts this and changes it any way he wants to. And, and Israel is absolutely unique in a situation of this very high moral law, and it even condemns the king. And the prophets stand out. Because if you have an immoral king or on the throne, that's why the prophets, like Jesus said, they were stoned and hated so much. They denounced it. Just like John the Baptist denounced Herod and got his head cut off. Well, they did that constantly. You don't find that in any other literature or any other religion or anything of that nature. The Bible's not a science book, but anywhere that it does touch on science, it does so accurately, even to the point of the Old Testament referring to the earth as being a circle. In Isaiah 40 and verse 22, he sets on the circle of the earth that uh, at a time when everybody thought it was flat. Well, I won't go, keep going into that thing, but suffice it to say that when you check it by every tool available, it stands the test to perfection in a way that no other piece of literature will. The Jews reverenced it and respected it, and it was handed down, and it all blends, and it has the prophecies and the miraculous element and all. And then the interesting thing, Jesus now comes on the scene, and uh, Jesus, right away, uh, endorses this. And he speaks of the law, the Psalms, the prophets. And Jesus quotes from the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And so, as he uh, quotes from it, we can see, well, Jesus is endorsing exactly what we have. In other words, when he read the Bible in the Jewish synagogue, uh, thanks. this was a uh, this was exactly uh, what they had. Well, then, what we see here then is that if it can be proven that Jesus was who he claimed to be, then all the evidence that stands behind Jesus will stand behind what he endorses. And one of the things that we'll do, just like in a lesson on evidence, is if you ever got one shot at anybody, the thing to deal with is the resurrection of Christ. Because Jesus endorsed all of this, law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, quotes it as inspired from God, and in the New Testament, Jesus actually endorses it in advance by telling you that the apostles will be guided by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will give them a remembrance of all that he has taught them, and the Holy Spirit will guide them on in to the truth. And so that he endorses the apostles in advance, and he endorses 
the Old Testament retrospectively. And so if it can be proven on the basis of the prophets and apostles that he is who he claimed to be, then this makes the whole thing stand. Uh, you know, the first you have to prove. That's why that when I deal with Jesus in a lesson on evidences, I do not start out with the assumption that the Bible is inspired of God. Uh, I start out looking at the Bible as just pieces of literature and facts from history, and just like in that lesson that I advertised that using only those historical facts that non-Christian scholars recognize, the only facts that I'll use is those particular historical facts that are recognized by non-Christian scholars. Well, if you can take that and prove these, that the resurrection is a fact, well, then the rest then the rest comes into focus. But it's uh, a lot of times Christians make the mistake of trying to use the Bible to prove Jesus, just because the Bible says so, when in reality the person doesn't believe the Bible. you got to just make it clear to them, this book here is really 66 books, and it's historical documents that come down through the centuries, and there's a lot of facts in there that even the highest skeptics know acknowledge as historical fact, and so let's just forget about the inspiration and look at those particular historical facts and see what we've got when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus and the various things about it. Okay, so now we leave the Old Testament then and come to the uh, the New Testament. Now, let's see, I bet I didn't uh, let my little uh, eraser. Uh, now, Steve, would you get it? He can get it. Uh, you know the uh, tall chest drawers, the very top drawer in that little room in my study downstairs. It's got, I believe that's the one that has the razor. If not, I'll get the damp rag or take care of it. Alright, when we come to the New Testament, we start with, we wind up with 27 books, and what we're going to do in this is somewhat of what, uh, in a brief way, of what uh, McDowell covers on the manuscripts themselves, and we'll look at a few other things. But we want to take and look at these 27 books that we have in the New Testament. And all I want to do here is simply demonstrate uh, what we're saying now does not prove these 27 are inspired by God. What we're going to do first is show that you can actually prove that these 27 books were written as reputable testimony. The acid test of any historical work is that it is written and published at the time people are alive who were involved in the events and can challenge the material. And so we can we can actually prove that number one it was was it was written it was circulated at a time when people were alive that were involved in these events. And then number two, I want to show that uh, although you do not have a single solitary original manuscript, you know, any of the New Testament books, that you can actually show that it has been transmitted down through the centuries, and you can construct uh, a text today where you can be absolutely positive of. And I might add, I don't think it's any accident that we don't have any of the original manuscripts either. I believe that's part of the, the, wisdom, the wisdom of God involved in that. But now, we take our 27 New Testament books, okay? When we go back and look at them, we have, first of all, what we call manuscripts. And version. 
and then I'll put one more of your letters. All right, a manuscript is a direct word-by-word -word copying. And so, so if you have something here in Greek, and you copy it exactly in Greek, that's a manuscript. And then you copy it again, that's a manuscript. And so you can have manuscripts that go way back here to, and then over here, 800 years later, they're still manuscripts. All right, in a version is where you take a manuscript and then you translate it into another language. Well, you can see then that when you're going to translate the Bible, the manuscripts uh, are more important than a version for exactness. Because any time you translate into another language, there is at least an element, at best, of interpretation and all. And so you have, but then the versions are going to be very important too. All right, now when it comes to the manuscripts, we have about 24,000. Interesting thing here is that uh, at the time that Dow first put out his book, Evidence of the Man's Verdict, he listed about 6,000 uh, Greek manuscripts, and we've already jumped to 24,000. So that just shows you how much the archaeologists are uncovering and all. Now that doesn't mean 24,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Of those 24, some of those are complete New Testament manuscripts. Some of it would be a manuscript of John, a manuscript of Mark, or part of the manuscript of We've got 24,000 uh, manuscripts in various forms there. Okay, now, these manuscripts go all the way back to 250 A.D. So the oldest manuscripts we have, Greek manuscripts, go back to 250 A.D. Now, the versions, we've got about 9,000 or so versions that go back, and here's where the versions become important. They go back really about 150 A.D. Well, obviously, you cannot have a version without having a manuscript first. So if you've got a, a version, and the oldest is the Syriac version, and I've got a copy of the Old and New Testament over here, the Syriac version. If you've got a Syriac version, that uh, it was translated from a manuscript before that, but it goes back, the oldest one, to 158. Well, you can see right now, you're getting extremely close to the apostles themselves. You're, you're back to, to 150 AD. But now these letters, we've got over... 1,500 of these letters where the Christians, the early church fathers, and then those that followed afterwards, wrote letters like uh, the letter from uh, Clement of Rome writing to the Corinthians, and Ignatius, and people of that nature, uh, Justin Martyr, Polycarp. Uh, in these letters, these people totally quote the entire New Testament. In fact, Simon Greenleaf, an outstanding lawyer of the past century, went through and to the best that he could figure out, he could find every single verse in the New Testament except for eight verses in those letters. Now that's just how extensively that they quoted them just like religious writers do today in their commentaries and their lectionaries and, and things of that nature. And this goes right back, these 1,500 letters go right back into the first century, right with the apostles themselves. Now, these letters are not really important to us in getting a translation into the English language. What the letters prove is that the manuscripts were written in the first century. Okay, that's what they prove. 
that you, you can't copy from something that's not in existence. So they proved that they was completed in that time. All right, now, the manuscripts, then, are what we're going to use to translate into the English language. Now, I don't want to, I, I hesitate to get into this, but I'm going to bring it in anyway, and hopefully don't muddy the water here, because I'm. if I were going to do this, I'd do it different now, and I think this is something you're not going to see it in the near future, but within the next five to ten years, you're going to hear more of this, and maybe it'll be even more verified before then. For a number of years, there had been some scholars that believed uh, that the Bible was not originally written in Greek, but in Aramaic. And that uh, I've been, uh, of course, Lamsa, the fellow that I've been doing a lot of reading from, uh, has contended for that for years. He's from Syria. He, trans he translates his Bible directly from the Aramaic language uh, into, into the English No, But he's not the only one. That I've just uh, finished reading several works in the field of evidences, and there are a, a number of very sharp top scholars who believe that the original was written in Aramaic. And, uh, and I won't go further than that, but I'm saying I think you're going to find that verified and proven before we're through here. And, and as they get more meticulous in the study of the, uh, of the material itself. But anyway, that uh, we, we go back to our Greek manuscripts, and we're going to bring this into the English language and give ourselves a translation. Okay, now, when we take this... Uh, manuscript, we're going to deal with small numbers. First of all, of the manuscripts, they've got four that they consider their absolute superior. Uh, that, uh, that is the Sinaic manuscript found at Mount Sinai, the Alexandrian manuscript found at Alexander, Egypt, and then the Vatican manuscript that belongs to the Catholic Church, and then the Ephraim manuscript itself. And so these four manuscripts, are four, each of them contain the complete New Testament, and they are considered the best of all we have, of, of, of the new. In other words, of all of the complete manuscripts of the whole New Testament, these four are considered absolutely outstanding. All right, now, when you take these manuscripts, like let's take the Sinai, the Vatican, and the Alexandrian, and Ephraim, here you've got four outstanding manuscripts that are found in four completely different locations. So let's put them side by side and we see what happens. We just lay the four down together. In fact, we throw in a few more, but for simplicity, I'll just deal with the four. And what they find is when they lay them side by side, Matthew next to Matthew and Mark next to Mark, and they go through and start reading, that on seven-eighths of the material, they are absolutely in perfect agreement. That means that seven out of every eight words, there's not even a jot or tittle or marking or anything that's any different. So that any discrepancy, any difference or anything would hinge on one word in eight. But from seven-eighths to fifteen-sixteenths of the material, the only differences they find, just keep in mind that they didn't have copy machines or anything of that nature then, and so the scribes were professional copyists. And just like when you copy, in fact, it's interesting to me, I sent this out, and they did a good job on that, but there's two mistakes. There's two. Number one, they left the A off on against, but now whether I left it off when I sent it out to them or there, I don't know. It could have, it could have been me. 
And this should have been plural, Christian evidences. So even something being that careful, I tried to be as careful as I could, and I'm sure that whoever did this tried to be as careful as they could. But there's still two mistakes there. Okay? But then look at the nature of the mistake. I know that, that there's in fact this word against down here that I, didn't even, I read it through the first time that I realized I made a mistake because my mind subconsciously put it there. And a lot of times I could show you, I do this in a class, they're used to when I taught reading to kids, go through and specifically knock out individual letters, and you'd be surprised how many times you can do that and you won't pick them all up. Your mind will just grab the word. Well, from 7 a's to 15 16's, the only mistake, the only discrepancy, is where a scribe has left off a letter, R has uh, um, uh, not done. So, first of all, if you didn't have anything but one manuscript, you could get it from 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths perfect because you could figure out an individual letter with no problem. But with the plurality of manuscripts, there's no problem at all. And by the way, this is a little more significant than you might think in the sense that when you're dealing with Aramaic, the Dali Benai can change the meaning of the whole word. And so it becomes very significant. But still, I'm saying that's the only type of thing. And since you've got all these manuscripts, a textual critic has no problem at all in laying these manuscripts down, and you can, and he can bring this. In fact, uh, somebody that is a real simpleton in, in language criticism could bring it from seven A's to fifteen sixteenths perfect with no problem whatsoever. Well, from fifteen sixteenths to nine hundred ninety-nine out of a thousand, if you were a scribe in copying. Uh, What's my? Oh, okay. If you were a scribe and copying, the most common mistake you would make would be to leave out a letter every now and then, or to write a letter that looked like another letter, or not dot an I. That'd be the most common mistake. The next most common mistake you'd make would be to leave out a word. You'd simply be copying a sentence and leave out a word. In fact, I don't know how many times, that's probably the worst thing that I do, that I tend to write fast, and when I write, I can invariably go back and see several words, but even then it's interesting, because these, these scribes do check themselves. If you've been writing for a while, you can actually go back and read, and where, you're, where you've left out a word, your mind will put it there. It really will. In fact, there again, if you're a fast reader, you can read material where somebody else has left out words, and you can read through it, and a slow, in fact, this is an interesting thing, a slow reader is more apt to pick it up. But you can read through it, and still not pick it up. So it's easy to understand that how when a scribe was being very scrupulous, that he still, every now and then, is going to leave out a word. Well, then, from 1516 to 999 out of 1,000, the only mistakes the guy made was somebody left out a word every now and then. Well, there again, everybody's not going to leave out the same word. And so if I lay 10 manuscripts down, and you got a blank, you got this goes from this word to that, and there's no word here, uh, and th that's not going to happen on the other end. It's not even going to happen on half. And so if you look at that, you're not going to have any problem figuring out what the word goes there. In other words, by the time a textual critic gets through with this, now Westcott and Hort, who put together the Greek text that we translated the 1901 American Standard Version, which even to this day is considered the most literal English rendering that you can get, this was their statement that by the time that a textual critic gets through with the New Testament, you can be absolutely positive of 999 out of every thousand words. 
that they have done that good a job. In other words, when they talk about textual criticism, all of the argument is on one word in a thousand. Now, one word in a thousand constitutes one half of one percent of the New Testament. And so one half of one percent constitutes all the argument. And, and the thing of it is that one half of one percent involves material that whether it's there or not there, it really doesn't affect anything. Uh, for example, uh, Acts 8, verse 37. Uh, you will not find it in any of the translations except the King James. And it's the eunuch, before he's baptized, confessed his belief in Jesus. All right? The older, the older manuscripts don't have that, that confession there. Well, obviously, the confession of, of Jesus is taught in other places, and uh, numerous other places. Well, what happened here, the best that we can figure out, when a scribe was copying this in the 2nd, 3rd century, it was the practice of the church to confess before baptism. And so he just thought, he, he honestly thought he was improving the text. And anytime you have a series of words, the scribe really has not tried to mutilate. If they have left out something that he thought should be there, he just simply has included it. And so, on the other hand, it really doesn't matter whether or not it's there, but it's a very simple thing that some scribe actually thought he was improving it by putting it there. All right, the same thing, you might read something in, uh, we'll say, Mark, and then in Matthew, that same statement may be questioned. In other words, it's in Matthew, but it's challenged because of the way it's fit into the material. Well, what happened again is that some scribe, when copying Matthew, noticed that now when Mark gave this account, he also said such and such, and so he went ahead and added it and thought he was improving Matthew's account. All right? There are several other passages, 1 John 5, 8. But anyway, several little things like that of where there's a certain phrase or statement that is questioned, the, the end of Mark, uh, the very end uh, from Mark uh, uh, 16 after verse 8. Uh, that uh, that section is challenged. I might add that you can, you can put a, present a good argument either way on that because it's the last page of the manuscript itself. But anyway, those eight verses are challenged. Again, whether they're there or they're not there, what is there is taught in other places. So suffice it to say that not only can you get it down to, to accuracy of, of one word in a thousand, but even then you're dealing with things that does not in any way affect the text itself. There's no particular doctrine affected or involved in, in any way. So, what we can show is that by looking at those letters, we can take the New Testament and take it all the way back to the time of the apostles themselves, written in the first century. By taking the manuscripts and by using textual criticism, we can give a, a product today. When we say 999,000 words, now we're not saying that you can pick up an English translation. And it's going to be perfect tonight. We're saying that the Greek text that that English translation comes from, because then when you translate from Greek into English, you definitely are going to have some areas of interpretation. And so again, you're going to wind up where there might be a few areas, a few places. Uh, for example, the New International, which is the version that I read from most of the time. It's, an, I think, an excellent translation and all. But where uh, it says... Uh, where it should say the flesh, they put sinful nature. Well, the the most common belief among uh, Protestant theologians is the doctrine of total depravity. 
that you are actually born in sin, and then you're incapable of any good until the Holy Spirit regenerates your mind in some miraculous way. Uh, but there's a, a difference between saying uh, just the flesh or your sinful nature. Well, the literal Greek is flesh. But because of their belief in that, they put sinful nature. Well, it doesn't bother me because I, when I read it, I know. But again, if you already believe that doctrine and you read that, it would reinforce that in your mind. All right, another example. Uh, when you read in 1 Corinthians, in the King James Bible, you got this statement, unknown tongues. Well, if you read in the Greek, you won't read that word unknown. You just read tongues or languages. And if you look at it in the King James very carefully, you'll find out it's italicized. Because, see, now one thing, the King James was very, very good in, in, in 1611 when they did this. Anytime they supplied words to improve what they thought was the understanding and the transmission of it, they always italicized those words. Uh, one of the criticisms of the New International and some of the modern translations is that they do not italicize the words that they supply to convey the meaning to you. But the King James did. If they had to supply even a word to convey a meaning to you, they italicize that word. But the point is, a whole doctrine was built on the unknown tongue, when really it's not even in the Greek. You know, that Paul even tells you in that same text that there is no language without significance, and he's actually condemning them for getting up and speaking in a way that other people can't understand. He said, if there's no interpreter in the church, then sit down. He said, I'd rather speak ten words that could be understood than ten thousand words, you know, that somebody cannot understand. And so that, that whole process is really really being condemned. But anyway, just a, a couple of examples there of how that there is interpretation when you come to a translation. And so when I say accurate 999,000 words, I'm talking about the Greek manuscript and not about the, the English translation. And also, in fact, uh, I don't believe that if anybody, if, they, if they're reading for understanding and really want to get precise with it, the thing to do is not read from just one translation read from several translations, and then anytime you read a something that seems to be a little different than someplace else in its meaning, then go get your Greek interlinearary and, and check the thing out, you know, that you just have to use a little vigilance there yourself. But even on those things I'm talking about, the understanding or the misunderstanding of it is not going to cost anybody their soul, or have, not going to have anything to do with the way they live their lives, or, or, or anything of that nature. So, we, deal, we wind up the product then that for all practical purposes is, is just near perfect and that we can prove that it was written as refutable testimony. Well then what happens today if somebody has not had this explained to them or studied it or read it or what, here goes this kid to college and a professor gets up and says, number one, you don't even have the, the actual manuscript that Paul wrote or Peter wrote. And two, did you know there's over 200,000 mistakes in the manuscript. Well, what it's saying is true. But those 200,000 mistakes are scattered over thousands of manuscripts. And really, there is no writing in all of ancient literature that is copied with such faithfulness as the New and Old Testament scriptures. There's just nothing that was copied with that kind of precision. In fact, the Old Testament was actually handled with a little more precision than the New Testament, because the Jew had such tremendous reverence for God that, uh, for example, the Masoret text, that uh, whenever they copied, they counted the words. And if they come up one word too short or one word too many, they didn't go back and try to find a mistake. They tore it up and copied it again. And that's just how exactly it worked. 
when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, they really did not help us in improve our translation of the Old Testament. What they did is show how accurately it had been transmitted. For example, the Isaiah that we had was translated from a manuscript that was really the 9th century A.D. The Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript the manuscript itself was two centuries before Christ. And so you've got an 1100 year span there. And when they took the Isaiah in the 900 AD manuscript and compared it with this 200 BC manuscript, you did not even come up with something that you could improve the text with. Nothing significant or anything. And so that just simply showed how meticulous that these people had copied that, you know, down through the years. So suffice it to say, in either way you go, you get a document that has been copied like no other document that's ever been written. Not only that, there is nothing in ancient history where you have so much manuscript material as you have the Bible, and there is nothing in ancient history where you have so much manuscript that goes right back to the time the events actually occurred. So in all of these categories, the Bible is actually unique. Even in the 150 A.D., when the Bible is, is being translated in all these other languages, I don't, you cannot go to any other work and show that just so soon after being written, before you translate something in, from France into English, or German into English, or vice versa, it has to be something that has really established itself here and has caught people's attention so that somebody wants it in another language. There has just simply never been the work written that just all, immediately, within even that generation, it's going out into just literally multitudes of translations. Another thing. Also, on television our day, it's talking about these missionaries down in South America and working on translating the Bible into these obscure languages of some of these tribes who would maybe just have, you know, a hundred or so people in the tribe and they were translating Bibles for that particular tribe. They had to actually develop the language. The people hadn't, didn't have a written language and the missionaries uh, developed a written language from the, from the, things they did, taught the people reading and writing from from the Bible they translate for them to have. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, too, the number one force behind literacy in the world has been the Bible. Uh, when they started schools in this country, it wasn't, there was no public schools. The first private schools were started primarily to teach people to read, and the motive behind it is so they, their belief that everybody should read the Bible. But the, the, the motive behind literacy initially was not like we think of today, great, ed great education, like a good living. But back when you uh, did a lot with your physical body, uh, instead of so much with the mind and all, they really didn't think that way. The number one motive behind literacy was to be able to read the Bible. And, that was the, and, and it has been the number one force all over the world. And there's been several languages that have literally been put into print and a language developed uh, for that precise reason, just so they could actually read the Bible. And right now, it's been translated into every single solitary major language, and the vast majority of even dialects, and again, you couldn't say that of anything that's ever been written. I mean, just in any way you look at it, it stands as a very, very unique book. All right, now, on the New Testament, from a standpoint of inspiration, you have the same thing now. First, you have the miraculous element involved. Well, there again, I didn't see those miracles. But I do know 
that when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, for example, he talks in a matter-of-fact way about the miraculous that they have as a result of him being with them. And he, and he talks about his own credentials as an apostle. The very, and and in, the, in this letter that he talks so freely about miracles and about his own credentials, in that very letter he's rebuking them so strongly for a number of sins and the way they're worshiping and all, and they just simply receive that letter and they don't argue with it. And even when Clement of Rome writes them in 95, he quotes from Paul's two letters that he wrote and brings up some of the same matters again. So I'm saying the very fact that that body of people will receive a letter and not challenge that statement. And then the letter itself is written for a man telling them, hey, you better straighten up your life. Well, what you're going to say, who are you? Well, Paul's telling who he is. I'm the guy that the Holy Spirit has confirmed with all these miracles and everything. So I'm saying the very fact he could write it and they would take the condemnation and repentance would take place and they would never challenge a statement is evidence at least he did what they thought was miracles. And so that's interesting that no historical scholar would deny that. that Paul, they at least did what they thought were miracles. So that's one thing that we know that it was it had the miraculous. Second, it contains the eyewitness testimony concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the way we evaluate testimony today is just like today. I spent about, well, I guess each day, I've spent about an hour and a half watching these testimony on the Iran-Contra affairs. And the interesting thing to me was that, uh, and it, the same thing happened way back in Watergate, and here you got all of these congressmen sitting back here, and the audience watching, and, and uh, Poindexter testified, and they weren't satisfied at all. Schultz gets up there, and everybody's happy with him. What Schultz was saying was bearing out with all the other facts that they had. They didn't catch him lying a single time. And he's the only one they didn't. They're the only one they didn't catch. So out of all the testimony that's been given by North and Poindexter and all, the most valuable is going to be Schultz. And so we evaluate testimony on the basis of truth is harmonious. And anytime you have two things in conflict, one has to be wrong. And so then you get the peripheral facts. And we find out what harmonizes here. And on the other hand, if you can have a plurality of people testify, and they use their own vocabulary and their own expressions, and they say it in different ways, and one will add one thing that another doesn't, but yet it all jives like a glove, you know you've got truth. Because that's impossible unless you've got proof. It'd be just like you and I trying to lie about something, all of us together trying to lie about something. And then I had to go in a room, and you go in a room, and, and each of you go in a room, and then we write about this thing that we've decided to lie about, and somebody's going to read our testimony. There's no way we're going to write something that will perfectly coincide or anything like that. And so, with the New Testament, you get these documents that just literally come together like a glove, dealing with the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his, and his resurrection. And so you wind up, it's no accident that God has given us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He could have given us one. He gave us those four documents written by four people with four completely different personalities who looked in Jesus. Matthew was a Jew looking at Jesus from the standpoint of the man that fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And that was primarily what he was interested in. Luke is a Gentile historian who's looking at Jesus and, putting, and looking at him in those aspects of his life that would be fascinating and interesting to a Gentile. John had a personal relationship with Jesus that was closer than any of the others. 
And you have the individuality and the personality and the person of Jesus more in John than you have in anything else. And John wrote for, a, wrote for a particular reason that the deity of Jesus was being challenged and he was handling that argument in his book. Mark is the gospel in, in the first century. Mark is referred to as the gospel of Peter according to Mark. And you can see the personality and the characteristics of Peter in Mark. And so you've got four personalities in this, and yet they all jive. You've got the same personality. Now, another thing to think about, one guy made this statement some years back. When you just read this, if you don't even know anything about a lot of things that we've talked about, that personality called Jesus stands out as the most unique personality that's ever been developed on the pages of any literature. So here is this absolutely unique personality, but he comes forth four different times. Well, how do you have four different books that perfectly come up with that personality? And well, this man made the statement, if, if Jesus is the product in any way of man's imagination, then water has indeed risen higher than its source. Because there's never lived a man who lived or talked like he did. And so he just stands forth as somebody that the very people writing about him stand condemned in his presence, and yet how do these imperfect people put forth this individual that through the centuries people have gone over with a fine-tooth comb trying to find the first blemish, and they haven't found it yet. Uh, in any way that you can look at that character or personality, and his personality is full of paradoxes that, uh, that we find hard to even put together. Uh, show me a person who's very extremely merciful and compassionate and kind, and, I'll, and, and that's great. But generally, I'll show you a person also who probably is not going to be the firmest person to stand up for something because he's going to be so concerned about other people's feelings and all. Show me this person that's willing to stand up and take a stand on whatever he believes is right and be firm and, and not give an inch. And I'll show you somebody that probably lacks a little bit in compassion and has to work at it there. I have never met personally anybody that I thought put it all together. That in, in our imperfect personalities. We, we just simply pick our weaknesses and strive to work on them, but we just don't put it all together. And yet here you've got this personality that is extremely compassionate and kind and unworldly and moral, and yet we'll look the leaders right in the face and call them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and, and never back away from anybody on any situation. And so all this uniqueness revealed in that personality in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, then... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament. So what you're getting in the New Testament, in the way of evidence, you have the convergence of all the prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah and his kingdom converging in the New Testament. Then the eyewitness testimony pointing back to Christ himself. And then out of that there is the predictive element of one that we've traced all the way through the New Testament in that Jesus at a time of Christianity was nothing and Judaism was everything, was predicting the total destruction of their city, their temple, the overthrow, and that Christianity would fill the earth. Something that would have sounded ridiculous uh, to the Jew of that day, and yet that's exactly what happened. And in it itself fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So suffice to say, we could say more, but you could go on and on and on. And the same things you can say, we said in the Old Testament, the historical accuracy, accuracy with all the archaeological facts, the same morality, 
not inaccurate or missing the mark in any way that we can check it by any known fact that's available to us, just perfect in any way we can look at the source itself, that it stands that kind of test. And so, putting it all together, we have a document of 66 books, over 2,000 years, written by about 40 authors in several languages, and it flows together and makes this one volume. There was no one of the writers that got to read the entire product. And yet it fits together like a glove, the entire thing. So when you're through with it, you can literally wind up positively saying that that book could not exist and contain the material that it contains and the way that it contains it and all, except it had the same mind behind it all. And it's inspired, inspired by God. And then to appreciate fully the Bible, one has to ask the question, is just like Urban Linton in his book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, made this observation. He said to fully appreciate it, you have to ask yourself the question, what could God do that he did not do to make it even more, the evidence even stronger? What could he possibly do uh, to make the evidence even stronger from the standpoint of revealing material in history? Keep in mind that when it comes like even to Jesus, in order for me to see it, he'd have to be crucified in every generation for 2,000 years in order for me to see it. And then, where do you crucify him on the earth right now so that everybody can see? And where do you crucify him in the first century so that everybody can see? So the only way to, with, with me in a finite body, the only way to crucify Jesus so that everybody can see and, and see the resurrection and all, and, and the only way to perform a miracle so that everybody can see it. Well, he touched him and ate with him and it really let him, they, they felt his... Uh... Right, Mark's on us. But I'm saying the only way that God could do that in a way that everybody could see him crucified, see him buried, and see him raised is to allow it to happen multitudes of times in the same generation, which is ridiculous. And so he really died once for all, for all mankind. But God has given our eyes are no more than a tool, and our ears are a tool. We don't really see with our eyes. We don't believe some things our eyes see. If you do something that is illogical, my eyes will reject it. We literally see with our brains and our eyes and our ears and our touch and our taste simply bring information to our brain and our brain will determine whether or not we believe it. And so when Jesus heals a blind man, they didn't just believe that in John 9. They said, hey, was he really blind? And they said, well, he was born blind. And so well, let's see the let's talk to the mom and daddy. So they go get the mom and daddy, and they said, "Yeah, this is our son." And yes, he was born blind. And other people come up and say, "Yes, this is a blind man that stand here and begged all, all the time." And so then they become, "Hey, he really was blind." But they didn't just believe that; they wanted to be convinced that he was really blind. They knew he was seeing, but they had to be positively convinced that he was really blind. And so, in reality, even if something happened before you of a miraculous nature now. You would still have to examine it and, and become convinced it was so, you know, that before you could actually know that a miracle was involved or anything of that nature. The great thing about prophecy is that once it transpires and takes place, it's there for all time. That like the, the prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament that's fulfilled over here, if time goes on, you can always go back and examine that information and use that evidence in the same way. I don't say that. I don't Oh, uh, 
Anybody have any uh, comments on that? No, okay. I'm just, and I was just about going to uh, cut it on there now. Uh, the What Steve got into is what the material that you get into it when you go to examine, you know, the resurrection of Christ and, and that, that kind of thing. We were just looking at the Bible and from an overall standpoint, and then you can get into that and spend the entire several lessons just on the uh, the resurrection of Christ. And what about those books that, that uh, uh, the Apocrypha books? Be, no, okay. The Apocrypha book, that's a good question. We mentioned that uh, the, if you pick up a Catholic Bible, and I've got one in there, the uh, Catholic Bible contains these 66 plus 12 other, First and Second Maccabees, Book of Enoch, and several others, 12, 12 of them. These books were written between the Testaments, between the Old and New Testament. At the time that Jesus came to this earth and all, the, the Jews never did recognize them. Number one, they don't even claim to be inspired. Two, no Jew ever claimed that they were inspired. What they were was the Jew, even back before then, has always had his secular historical writings, too. And so the Jew never claimed there was anything but just the historical writings, and some of it's fiction. Some of it is made-up stories uh, for a particular reason. And then some of it, now, First and Second Maccabees, especially First Maccabees, is an outstanding historical source. In other words, a lot of true information in it, just like there is in the works of Thucydides or anything. But they were not written by any prophet. They were not written by anybody that performed any miracles. Uh, they contained the same kind of inaccuracies that you find in Josephus or Tacitus or anything. They was never ex accepted as inspired and thought of that way. But they are good historical sources. So in the early church, they had the Old Testament that was in